You're listening to episode 177 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we kick off another segment of church history with our resident church historian, Dr. Alan Strange. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much, Jared. Over the next several weeks, we'll be taking a look at one of the more significant of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, his works, and as well as the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon and elements of the clergy. But today, we want to start with Augustine. Dr. Strange, last time we talked about Ambrose. What was his connection with Augustine? Well, you know, I suppose uh, if, if there's nothing you could say about a person, then that he was the mentor to who, in the minds of some, is the greatest of the church fathers, if not the greatest figure in the history of the church. You could say that about Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose did have, as I suggested, uh, a a growing, uh, a waxing sense of the grace of God. And of course, what we're going to see as we talk about Augustine this and next time is he's going to come to... uh, a focus, you might say, on the grace of God and that our salvation is of grace, Uh, something that will be developed more fully by Luther and Calvin, of course, in the Reformation. And there are are aspects, there are ways in which we uh, would differ from Augustine. Uh, We would develop, for example, that justification is not a process. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Uh, A process uh, which we are finally, when we're finally justified, which usually occurs, uh, according to Augustine, uh, in purgatory, uh, when that finally occurs, then we're thoroughly, uh, we're, 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 when we're thoroughly sanctified by purgatory, we're justified finally and achieve heavenly glory. Uh, but he did point us to grounding everything in the person and work of Christ. Again, he wasn't consistent in that, and it's something that Luther and Calvin will more fully and properly develop. But this is why, when you consider the early church, for example, we've talked about a variety of figures in the early church. And I think Torrance is not incorrect when he talks about this, and these things are all highly debated. But when Torrance, in what was his doctoral dissertation, uh, talks about uh, the doctrine of grace in the apostolic fathers, which uh, I think was mentioned back at the time. He finds the apostolic fathers, and we're thinking now of figures there, the most immediate figures of the second century, uh, but you could go on to talk about in the third and fourth centuries. He finds them deficient in their understanding of grace, particularly coming away from Paul. Because in the Apostle Paul, on the pages of the New Testament, I think we would all agree as Reformed and Presbyterian folk that there's a very vigorous affirmation that salvation is indeed by the grace of God alone. And even though we speak about faith alone, it's not faith itself that saves us. Faith is that looking to and trusting in the work of another the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's by his active, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, his active and his passive obedience, his keeping the whole law for us and dying on the cross for our sins, that's the basis 
of our salvation. It's not even our faith. Faith is an instrument whereby we lay hold of Christ and all that he's done. As Calvin liked to put it, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to Christ and Christ to us. And the Holy Spirit gives us faith to lay hold of him. And so that, of course, is going to be teased out and more developed in the Reformation. That's something we'll talk about in future episodes. But it is the case that Augustine is and has the place that he does in our understanding of the history of the church because he does bring a vigorous understanding of grace to the fore again in a way that it hadn't quite been to the fore really since Paul. Uh, the, The early church has a sense of the changed life that we enjoy in Christ, and there's so much emphasis over against the whole pagan world. And there's a lot of emphasis on the changed life that we have in Christ that the you could say, and this is something Torrance says about the, the Apostolic Fathers, one of his comments is there tends to be a lot of imperative and little indicative. And Augustine is going to really recapture some of that indicative. And just for you listeners who might be scratching your head over these linguistic terms, the indicative is basically what Christ has done for us, who he is and what he's done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And the imperative arises out of that. You have this uh, a great deal in Paul. Paul bases how we ought to live, how we ought to live as Christians on the basis of what Christ has done for us. So in other words, the call to do always arises out of the fact that Christ has done. This tends to get marginalized uh, in the church's history in these early years as the gospel is going out to the nations. And it really is something that that Augustine, influenced by Ambrose, Ambrose has it, has it there in a form, but Augustine really develops it. Augustine, let me just talk a little bit about his life. His dates are 354 to 430, and he's born in a small city, Tagaste, which is in Numidia, North Africa, uh, that's in present-day uh, northeastern Algeria. And he had a f- very interesting family background, a brother, Navigius, a sister. We don't know her name. His father, Patricius, was uh, a leading citizen of their city, but not wealthy. So they were in the position, though, to support. He supported uh, Augustine in his studies, and Augustine was was from his youth, evidently suited for studies. Monica, his mother, we all know about her. We've all heard that name, I, I would suspect. And she's a pious Christian woman who really prayed ardently for years for her son's conversion and becomes a kind of model, you might say, for a parent teaching and patiently waiting and seeking to influence. Patrick, her, her her husband, did become a catechumen himself when Augustine was 16, and he supported, as I indicated earlier, the education of his son there in their city of Tagaste and then Medoras and then Carthage, the bigger city there in North Africa. And um, he comes to teach grammar. Uh, I just remind you all of the, the old ancient world and classical curriculum was uh, defined in the first place by the trivium, which was grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So grammar certainly had to do with the languages, but it had more to do also with just 
the fundamental facts uh, of any of the of the systems of thought. He taught grammar into Geist. Uh, he taught rhetoric in Carthage. He's sort of making his way up in the world. Uh, he goes to Rome uh, in uh, 384 and then Milan just a few months later. And in Milan, which is where Ambrose is, he is the archbishop there in Milan, uh, he took a position as a rhetorician where he hoped to make a name for himself. But what he had had gone through, Augustine, and you read this in his Confessions, uh, his confessions are a fascinating self-disclosure, you might say. Nothing like that had ever really been written in the world. I mean, nothing even had such a sense of of personhood. It's interesting in the ancient Roman world, you had a sense of of individuality that you and I aren't the same, that that we're we're different entities, so to speak. We're different individuals, but you didn't have a real idea of personhood until the Christian faith particularly develops the understanding of God as three persons. And it's really from that theology that you that you see a proper anthropology arise, because anthropology should arise out of theology since we're in the image and likeness of God. And it does certainly for Augustine. And but you see this sense of himself that he has and expresses in his confessions, which is really an extended prayer. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, have read it. You're familiar uh, with those words as he prays uh, that that you know show yourself to us, and that we admitting that he himself was restless until he found his rest in God. And part of that restlessness then led him through a number of of you could say philosophical systems. So his his mom is a Christian, his dad becomes a Christian. But he himself found Christianity in those earlier years philosophically deficient. He was too smart for it, in other words. He knew better, and he took a mistress, and he had a, a son with, with her, uh, Adeodatus. And at 19, he began to read Cicero, but he went through sort of, you know, that kind of a, an approach. Cicero, and he embraced Manichaeanism. Manichaeanism was this ultimate dualism, this belief that there was this struggle between, titanic struggle between good and evil, and it's not clear who's going to win. But at any rate, he does all of this, and he ends up there in Milan with Ambrose, and Ambrose, with his Neoplatonic philosophy, we talked about that. Ambrose was rather partial to Plato, and you say, is that problematic or not? Yes, it it's a yes and no thing. But what Ambrose impressed Augustine with was you can be you can be intelligent and thoughtful and successful. You could say a number of things and still be a Christian. In other words, he went from thinking of Christianity as intellectually and philosophically deficient, which you really couldn't do around Ambrose because he was so obviously uh, capable. He had been the governor, if you recall. I mean, so, and so he's converted in 386 and he's baptized the next year. That is, Augustine is converted in 386. He's baptized the next year at Easter uh, in 387. What's the, what's the, the sort of legend or what we learn of in history regarding Augustine's enlightening of his mind when it comes to scriptures, there's not a story where he was walking in a garden and he hears the voice of a of a small child. I mean, he gets there are various stories, of course. the The, the famous one about his learning about his sinfulness is mm-hmm. the, his 
his thieving of the neighbor's pears when he had no actual need for them. Mm. He didn't need them for sustenance. Yep. And uh, I think that we can really relate to this in our world. He he stole. It's like I've known people. I've actually dealt with people, you know, who are called kleptomaniacs or they're shoplifters and they shoplift for the thrill of it. They don't even need it's not like they're impecunious. They're poor and they can't afford anything. So there was that one. I think you're probably thinking of the children as he had picked up and was looking at Romans 13 and 14, and he heard children playing a game and saying, tole lege, tole lege, take and read. And he had picked up, he had been putting off the Lord, and he decided at that place there in, in Romans 13 where we're told in tr- Romans 12 and 13 to, to put off all that pertains to the flesh, to put on Christ and to to die to sin, to live to righteousness as a, as a theme there. He knew that he was avoiding that and that he, he felt he could no longer uh, avoid it. And so uh, he does uh, turn to the Lord. And he also writes, though, in this uh, confession, Another thing he he understands, he's coming to understand that God really is God. It's part of his whole discovery of grace, you might say. And he says uh, it, there and elsewhere, he says that some versions of, he has different versions of this, but uh, command what you will, O Lord, and give what you command. And a fellow named Pelagius, a monk in Britain, reads this. And Pelagius thinks this is a denial of man's free will, of, of his moral responsibility. And he is outraged by this and develops this counter approach to what he reads in Augustine. Augustine saying, you know, give what you will, O Lord, uh, in terms of you command and you give what you command. Uh, what we, what we need and lack, you give to us. And, uh, uh Pelagius thought that this was just the most lawless kind of thing he'd ever read. And he develops a whole view of Adam, Adam being a bad example. Mm. Adam took that fruit and he shouldn't have. And we're all born in the position of Adam. And we can either be good. Now there's sin in the world. So there there are certain allurements and enticements out there already. But basically, Adam was a bad example. His sin isn't imputed to us. We don't bear it or anything of that sort. I think the so what for um, for Augustine is that he really picks up, you could say, the football that Paul had run down the field considerably so. He picks up that football that salvation is entirely of the grace of God. And I think we'll see in the next episode what he specifically does with that. So we owe a great debt to Augustine who took us from a kind of notion that that we in some way save ourselves to God being the one truly who is our Savior. Next time, Dr. Strange will be looking at one of Augustine's great works, The City of God. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchbor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.